Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I heard a story uh, that, that I really liked uh, uh, from uh, Rabbi Judah Michel. Uh, it's, uh, it's about the, the, the Chos of Lublin, the, the, the seer of Lublin, one of the greatest Hasidic masters. And, and the way it goes is um, someone came to, to try to uh, just get some tzedakah, some charity, because his, his daughter needed marrying off, and, and this was a big expense. He didn't have it, so he was really in a, in a, in a, in a hard spot. And, um, and he was hoping that the, that the, that the chose would, would, would give him more than just the, the standard donation. And, and he had actually a trump card which was that he was related to the Chos of Lublin. So that's, you know, that, that's meaningful. So he tells him his uh, situation, and then he adds, and he says, and you should know that we're, we're relatives. And, and you see the, the Chos eyes, you know, perk up, and, and, and the man says, yes, he says, your, your grandmother is my grandmother's cousin's uncle's nephew. And he, the, the Jose says, you know, dis, distant, distant relations, you know, and gives him the standard donation. And the man is disappointed, you know, like, was really hoping for more. And he starts to walk out of the show. He's like a little bit depressed. And the Ropshitzer Rebbe, who is the Jose of Lublin's right-hand man, the ro- and, and a very great tzaddik also, and known for being sharp and also funny, actually, um, stops the man, sees that he's depressed, and he says to him, listen, he says, we're going to be davening mincha soon. Stick around, daven mincha with us. And when the Rebbe starts to do the repetition of the Shemon Esrei, he's going to say, you know, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. And at that moment, yell out, Distant relations. <laughs> and see what he says. <laughs> so the, the, the time, you know, comes and, and, and the Jose, you know, you, I have to understand, he's, the Jose of Lublin one of the holiest people that's ever lived. You know, this is a very big moment in the prayers. He gets up to that point. He yells out, distant relatives. And, 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 and the Jose shoots him a look like, that's serious business, right? And then the Chosa puts his head down on the bima, on the lectern there. And the man's like, oh no, like what's going to be? And after the davening, the Chosa turns to him with a big smile and hands him a big bag of gold coins. <laughs> so, you know, that's the end of the story. <laughs> I guess it speaks for itself, but we're... We're close. We're, 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 we're close. We're, we're, we're literally one family. And, and since our neshamas are a piece of God, I mean, what's, what's, what's closer than that? Um, it, it seems to me like there's so many people that, 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 that go through life and the, their entire life is... is I, I heard a rabbi one time refer to it. I, th- I thought that this was very accurate, very visual, and very heartbreaking at the same time. He, he talked about people's 
spiritual journeys as, as a big Ferris wheel. It just goes around in circles. People start to come close or they wonder they're on the verge of something and then it just goes back down and then it starts to rise up different circumstances in, in our lives whether they're inspiring or sometimes whether they're more difficult and different things bring us to a more spiritual place and then whatever the time passes we go back down and, and we spend our lives just sort of going around in a circle and that seems sad to me because God either exists or he doesn't exist. And, and a lot of us, and I don't think this is by um, design, by intention, but a lot of us reach what becomes a very satisfying conclusion to us, which is, you know what it is? God might exist. And that's it. That once, you, once you are satisfied with that idea, God might exist, you are in Ferris wheel land for the rest of your life. You know, you have decided with great certainty that God might exist. <laughs> and then, welcome to the rest of your life. As, as though that were an option in terms of objective reality. It's one or the other, folks. <laughs> he's either there or he's not there. It's one or the other. And it just, it just seems to me that it's, it's kind of funny that people... And then here, here's, here's... I'll take it to the next step. You ready for the next step? Religious people, people who actually keep Shabbos, keep, keep mitzvahs, things like that, you know, they live their lives with the absolute certainty that God might exist. <laughs> and therefore, they, they take out these elaborate insurance plans. You see, it's, 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 it's basically this endless journey. It's this endless journey where we can continue to go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Let me tell you something. The very first thing that God ever says to the very first Jew is to Abraham, right? Abraham. And God says to him at age 75, by the way, God says to him, Lech Lecha. Lech Lecha means, is, is, is a, an amazing phrase. And I want to just go into the, the letters themselves in a moment. But lech lecha means go. Lech means go, right? Like holech means to walk. So lech means go. And lecha is really interesting. It could mean you, as in you go, right? That, that would be the sort of the easy way of translating it. But lecha actually means to yourself. It's a possessive word, which means that the actual command is journey into yourself. And it's talking on multiple levels, as the Torah is always talking. So in other words, physically move forward. Take that next step toward accomplishing whatever goal it is that you have in life in a very practical, real, here and now way. But also 
use that as a meditation, if you will. You know, what you are applying your time and your physical effort and your life force to in order to uncover the depths that exist within yourself. So that every journey, and I'm, I'm talking about journey as actually, I'm talking about with, with one's body, every journey also becomes an act of self-discovery. So just the simple words themselves are, are, are pretty amazing. But I, I was looking at those words, lech lecha, and it's, and I was thinking, what is it about these words? What is it about these letters, you know? I'm visualizing them because the letters themselves teach us many different lessons, the shapes of the letters and everything like that. And, and I knew that there was something like compelling, like sitting right in front of my face, but I, I couldn't figure out what it was. And then it hit me. The perfect symmetry. First of all, both words, lech lecha, they're two two-letter two words. Lamed, final chaf. Lamed, final chaf. Interestingly, they, they mean these two different things, one to journey and the other word to yourself, okay? So they mean two different things, which is interesting, but they're spelled exactly the same way, and they're both two letters. Okay, so there's so much symmetry going on here. But then I realized what it was that I, that, that I was looking for. The letter Lamed is actually the tallest letter in the Aleph base. It breaks through the line going up. The final Chaf is one of the lowest letters. It breaks the line going down. And so you have this perfect symmetry between up and down in the word lech. And then in lecha, up and down. They're perfectly harmonized and, and the symmetry is just like total. And I thought, oh wow, that, that's, that's what I was trying to say. Like my, 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 my soul saw it, but my mind didn't see it, you know? And then it was like, okay, great. And then, but I was like, okay, so that's, like on an aesthetic level, that's awesome. But what does that mean? <laughs> you know, so I was like thinking, what does that mean though? What does that mean? What does that mean? Now, I'm going to change the subject for a moment, but I'm not changing the subject. I just, with this teaching, you'll, you'll be able to appreciate what I'm trying to say about Lechelchat better. So, um, so the, the Torah makes reference to in the, the whole incident of Shechem, if you know about that, it's okay, it's complicated, it's coming later, but, but basically it makes reference to Yaakov, Jacob's bow and arrow. And so since Jacob didn't participate in that battle that took place there, so the, the rabbis want to explain, well, what's the reference to Yaakov's bow and arrow, you know, if he didn't participate? And, and they explain that that, that means that Yaakov was praying. By the way, so that's his bow and arrow. And we're going to get to an explanation of that. But, but, but I just want to make a further aside, which is that um, prayer is a very big part of war. And at the time of King David, there was a certain part of the army, a certain percentage that went into battle, and a certain part of the army that stayed behind and prayed. And, and they were, you know, that was all part of the Jewish, you know, military effort. 
which is, if you think about it, that's, it's beautiful and it's great. And I remember I had a friend of mine who was, he wanted to go to Israel just for a short period of time, maybe a few weeks, and he wasn't um, Torah observant. He, he didn't keep Shabbos or anything like that. But he was, you know, his heart was open. And he, so he wanted to do something um, kind of to help the, help the country, help the security of the, of the, of the country. And so he, he called me up and he said, named a, a few different sort of like um, volunteer corps, right? Like, um, I don't know, like, I, I don't even remember what they were, but, but things that would help out with sort of like national security in a way that was geared toward volunteers. And I told him at the time of King David's army that there was a percentage that went out into battle and there was a percentage that stayed behind and prayed and learned Torah. And that that was part of our national security. I said, if you really want to participate in that, go to a yeshiva. And I, I recommended a particular yeshiva. And, and thank God, you know, the guy's like a rabbi now. You know, not officially, but he teaches classes and runs services and gives amazingly insightful explanations of things. He's a fairly brilliant guy. But anyway... So, so if you want to actually keep the world safer, advance the world, you know, you open up a book, a Torah book, you're actually on the front lines. That, that's real. That's real. We, we believe that. Okay? So, so anyway, let's get back to this idea of, of Jacob and his, his bow and arrow, which, which the commentators explain mean Jacob's prayer at, at this critical time, Right? So the Kutzker Rebbe gives one of the, just the, the great explanations, which is that he says prayer, like, because it sounds like two different things. Well, is it a bow and arrow or is it prayer? They sound like, well, you know, what's the connection? So, so the Kutzker Rebbe says the way prayer works is like a bow and arrow. <laughs> How? Because imagine you're pointing upwards. And now in the back of your mind, you can remember Lech Lecha, right? Imagine you're pointing the bow upwards. The further down you pull the, the string, right, whatever it's called, right, the higher the arrow goes. <laughs> In other words, when it comes to prayer, the more you dig down deep within yourself, the higher your prayer rises in the heavens. So now let's revisit the words lech lecha, Right? The Lamed, the first letter, that's the, that's pointing, that breaks through the line. It's the tallest letter. It's pointing toward the heavens. How did it get there? Because the next letter is going below the line. It's pulling it down. So as you dig deeper, your prayers go higher. Or as you reach higher, you're able to go deeper, right? Because you take that, that heavenly inspiration and you bring it down to this place of further self-discovery because what is the deepest place of a person? Your soul. And what's your soul? It's a piece of God. So as you're reaching higher, you know, you're basically getting in touch with the same forces. By the way, that's one of the, it's a, 
I wouldn't use the word proof because there's no way to prove the existence of God. God deliberately made the world that way. You know, it's like, it's a point that I really want to get out there. People think that God must be weak. Like they, they don't put it into these words, but I'm putting it into these words because this is what's going on. They think that God is weak. You know why? Because they say, how could it be that the one who made the entire world doesn't have enough strength to show you that he exists? <laughs> it must be that he's weak. <laughs> and if he's weak, who wants to serve a weak God? I got enough problems. <laughs> Aren't I going to change my entire life around for a God who can't even prove to me that he exists? What kind of God is that? See, this whole thing is based on like so many mistakes, piles of misunderstandings. God deliberately made the world in a way that he can't be proven. That was God's idea. <laughs> That wasn't a religious person trying to apologize for God. <laughs> that was God's idea to make it that his presence can't be proven. Why? Because he wanted a realm where free choice existed. We are the only creatures in the entire universe that have free choice. All the angels, gods, in the spiritual realms, there is no concealment. Okay, they don't see the entirety of God. Only God sees the entirety of God. But, they, but, but there's an open revelation of his existence. But God already has that. It's like he, exi- he created this world for something entirely new. A brand new concept. A creature that can't be bullied into believing in him. <laughs> A creature who gets to choose to see what is actually there. But it's up to us. So that explains the first lech of lech of lech lecha, right? Go. So that's this dynamic of reaching above, pulling below, right? Or pulling below and then you reach above even higher. So that's the first lech. But what about the second one? What about the second lecha? So I would like to suggest that as you reach higher and then, and then internalize that, you get to the next stage, which is lecha, which means you bring it to yourself. You bring heaven down to earth. When a person journeys in this way on the individual level, they bring that energy on the macro level, which is the second lamed reaching above to heaven and pulling it back down to earth. And so we know that each individual is a microcosm of the universe, right? Because it's so simple and so beautiful. Your soul is a piece of heaven, and your body is, is, a, is earth. In fact, where does the name Adam, which means a human being, come from? From the word Adama, which means earth, because we were formed from the earth. So, so you bring, you reach up individually, you go deeper within yourself, and that transforms earth into heaven, right? Or brings heaven down to earth. That's, that's lech lecha. And so, is there a better first thing that God should say to the first Jew than lech lecha? I mean, it literally contains the entire, the entire purpose of reality, the entire reason for the creation of this world. That's an amazing thing. Okay, 
So, so the thing is, is that, you know, have you ever told like a, a, a riddle to someone or a question to someone and they, they just like, I'm trying to think of an example, like, um, like, like you say to someone, I don't know, I'm just making this up. Okay, imagine that there are two twins. And the person says, do they have to be twins? <laughs> it's like, in the example that I'm giving you right now, they're twins, okay? Okay. So, so like, there's certain things that are just sort of set into place, and that's, that's what we're given to work with. So there are a lot of people who are railing against the premise of this world. In other words, they're, they're saying, well, wait a second. If there's a God, why is everything so concealed? So if everything's so concealed, I don't want to be part of this. Except you're already a part of it. <laughs> and these are the ground rules. <laughs> this is what God decided. So... So you can say, well, wait a second. Okay, so then how can I make God not concealed? Okay, great. That's, God wants that too. God also doesn't want to be concealed. So here's how you do it. But it's sort of like, yeah, but I don't like the idea that he's concealed. So I'm not going to participate in this process. You know, like, can you imagine you're playing baseball, right? And, 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 and right? Everyone knows the rules to baseball. And the batter hits it like right right between the second baseman and the shortstop, right? Like right up the middle. And then he runs to third base. <laughs> and you say, no, dude, it's like first you run to first base. <laughs> Who says? No, 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 you don't understand. This is, this is baseball. These are the rules. You, 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 you hit the ball. You run to first base, we're going counterclockwise. <laughs> yeah, but clockwise is so much more intuitive. Right. But we've been doing it this way for a long time because this is how it's set up. Okay, so, so, so there, there has to be a certain extent of humility that a person has to have that they go, okay, what is the system that I'm actually working in? So, or is there a system at all, right? And, and uh, you know, obviously, we can ask a million questions, and, and it's appropriate to ask a million questions. And w one of the things that I heard, like, early on that I always loved was using the Talmud as an example. Now, the Talmud is, is huge, right? It took... 500 years just to edit the Talmud, all right? And, and there was writing going on during that process as well. The Talmud, also known as the Torah Shabal Peh, the oral law, right? Which is, you know, part and parcel with the written law, with the Torah Shabbat Tzav. So you have the, I mean, it's all Torah, right? So, so, so the, the Talmud is so massive 
If you learn one page a day, it takes you seven years to get through it. By the way, this January, they're finishing up the cycle, the seven-year cycle, and there are going to be celebrations everywhere. So, you know, try to keep your eyes open for different things that are going to be going on, you know, cool things. So, so the Talmud is really, really massive. So it's massive, and what it is basically is one giant series of challenges. It's like attacking verses in the Torah and, and Torah understanding from every conceivable angle. And, and, and what I heard and what I loved is that the truth is not afraid of questions, right? If something is genuinely true, it should be able to withstand assault from every side. Now, it could be, by the way, that the answer is, we don't know. But that also makes sense, because we don't, we don't know everything, you know? And, and, and there are certain things that we'll never know, and, until we do, I guess. But, um, but anyway, so, so, so we're supposed to ask questions, and, 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 and that's proper. We're supposed to figure out, is there... Is there, in fact, an order to this world? Are there, in fact, rules to this world? And so I, I just want to just remind you of something that, that I think is just worth contemplating, which is that this world has a rigorously exact structure. And, and I'll use the word universe instead. This universe has a rigorously exact structure. And just, just to tell you, um, just to tell you, let's, let's just take a quick tour from the heavens down to atoms, okay? There, there are hundreds of billions of stars and planets and galaxies, just enormous structures exerting like tremendous gravitational pulls. And, and not only that, but there, in our galaxy alone, there are, just in the Milky Way, Millions of black holes, they say. Millions of black holes, which are like, you know, like these super vacuum cleaners, like just sucking in light and everything like that. So that's just in our galaxy. And there's zillions of galaxies, right? So my question is, why isn't there chaos? There should be chaos in the heavens. And yet we see that everything like goes like... It's, it's like the divine choreography, right? Everything is so precise. The orbits, like, like people can tell you the next time Halley's Comet is going to come around, like to the day, and it's like, sometimes it's like, okay, in 75 years, just based on the orbit of it, and, and they can do more amazing and more far-out calculations than that. Okay, so let's go down further. That's the heavens. What about the air we breathe? So it's, it's, it's approximately 78% nitrogen, 20% oxygen. And imagine if there were less oxygen, the entire world would suffocate. Everyone would stop breathing and die, like everyone. And if there were more oxygen, if you lit a match, it would turn into a conflagration, right? Because oxygen fuels fire. So... So that's, that's exact, the air we breathe. What about DNA? So I was just looking at, at this, 
If we had one, let's see, if we had one more set of chromosomes, I hope I get this right. It's either one more or one less. One more, we'd be melons or snails, (laughs) okay? (laughs) And if we had one less, and maybe it's one more, but if we had one off the other way, we would be opossums (laughs) or... um, some kind of nut. I forget which, which nut. <laughs> As in like peanuts, but not peanuts. Okay. Oh, no, no, no. Beans. <laughs> We'd be opossums or beans. Okay. So that's on a chromosomal level. <laughs> and, and then, okay, so that's the galaxies, the air we breathe, our chromosomal structure. What about on the subatomic level? You know, like one more proton or one less proton changes the atomic weight and then it changes the element. Like it's a completely different substance. It's not just like more of one thing or less of something. It's something completely different. I mean, it doesn't go from carbon to helium like by one proton, but a different substances like carbon and helium just completely different. So, so you see that the world is exceedingly exact. So if that's the case, why do people use this phrase, everything is so random? <laughs> right? Why do they say that? Because if you think about it, if you actually look at the world, nothing is random at all. So this is me talking right now. What I think people mean to say when they say everything's so random, here's what I'm going to translate. Here's what I think people are really saying. Life is so mysterious. That's what I think people are saying. And what they do is they then project their frustration or confusion, right? Like, why did he say that? Why didn't she do that? Why didn't this work out? Whatever it is. People project their confusion onto the world and decide that the world or the universe itself is random. But that's not the case. And what I would like to suggest is that there is a concept of truth and that that concept of truth doesn't just exist in the physical realm, like what we've just been through right now from galaxies, to air, to DNA, to atoms. It doesn't just exist in the physical realm, but it actually exists in the ethical realm as well. That there's, still, that there's also a concept of truth. And that's what we call the Torah. We say Torah emet. The Torah is a Torah of truth. And, and this idea is very scary for a lot of people. People feel very threatened by this idea because they think that people are going to use this to disenfranchise other people. And not only that, but they're going to use it as a cause of violence to other people. And, and certainly there's a history of that. But that's not the Jewish approach. So, so our approach is that we're all God's children that everyone has a share in the Torah, both Jewish and not Jewish. 
And not only that, but, but, but Judaism makes a very beautiful, has a very beautiful understanding, which if you think about it, has to be true, as opposed to other major religions in the world who, who, say, who say the opposite of this regarding their own faiths. The Jewish position is all of the righteous of all of the nations in the world have a share in the world to come. Now that, that's, a, that's an amazing thing. And how could it be otherwise? How could it be that Mother Teresa, who is like washing lepers, how could it be that she doesn't have a share in the world to come? It doesn't make any sense. That if, that, if, that if she doesn't pass some sort of like ideological litmus test that, that, that she doesn't get in, does, it doesn't make any sense. And therefore, how can a religion other than Judaism say that about a righteous Jewish person or a righteous Muslim or something like that? How, how can they, what, what sense does that make? It doesn't make any sense. So, so we say that not only is there a, a clarity to the physical structure of the world that we inhabit, but there's also a moral clarity too. But, but again, that has, to be, that has to be sought out, that has, to, that has to be learned, right? And it has to be learned in a beautiful way. And I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about right now. So... Because the example that I'm about to give you is really two extremes, okay? This could be used as an example of the horrors of religion. And yet, what I'm going to show you, I hope, I hope you'll agree, is something so beautiful within it. Okay? So, you know, what is a test? What is a test? A test means something's very hard for you to do, right? That's, and if it's, if it's a small test, it's hard, but it's not so hard. If it's a big test, that's a big test. That's really hard, okay? Now, we have a beautiful principle, which is that God doesn't give us any tests that he doesn't also give us the ability to withstand and, and succeed in. So that's reassuring. So if anyone ever gets a test... You should know that just by virtue of the fact that you got it means that you are capable of passing it. Okay, so that's, that's reassuring on some level. It doesn't mean it's not hard, and it doesn't mean you are going to pass it. But it means you can pass it. So that's, that's reassuring on some level, I think. Anyway, I would suggest to you that the greatest test that any individual ever got in the history of the world was Avraham and Yitzchak and the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. That's number one. That's number one. Okay. So, so there's, you know, we can talk for hours and hours and hours about what went on and everything like that. And I'm not suggesting that this following thought will be the definitive exploration of this event. Not by any means. I just want to touch on one tiny thing about it. If you, if you look at the language, first of all, i just tell you one thing, because you have to know this. God never asked Avraham to sacrifice Yitzchak. He never, asked Av- he never asked Avraham to kill Yitzchak. 
Look at the Torah itself. Look at the language of the Torah. Because, and, and the reason why that's so important is because if you say that God asked him to kill Yitzchak and then changed his mind, that means God changes his mind. And theologically, that's a very big problem. God doesn't change his mind. God knew that, Ye- that Abraham would misunderstand him. God used a particular language to, like in English we would say, to alterize your son, right? To put your son on the, the altar. He, God fully knew that Abraham would misunderstand that, and that was the nature of the test. That was the nature of the test. Okay, fine. But that, that's just an aside. But that, that's important to know. Because otherwise, all conversations will come back to, but what kind of God, you know, is about to kill the... But, but that was never on the table to begin with. That, that, that's why it's important to just begin any conversation with that piece of information. Okay. But, but, but this is the point I wanted to make. God knows that this is the greatest challenge that anyone is ever going to get, ever. And the language that God uses is the following. He says to, to Abraham, Kach na, which means, please take. Now, let me tell you why that's so important. At the moment that God is asking Abraham to do the most difficult thing he's ever going to ask anyone in history, he uses the gentlest, sweetest language. Please take. Now, why is that important? Because, bless him, a lot of times, and I'm, I'm not talking about mental illness right now, but everyone hears voices in their heads. That's, that's normal. That's a part of consciousness, right? And oftentimes, we'll hear a yelling voice telling us to do certain things, like, don't you realize it's almost Shabbos? (laughs) The son's about to say he didn't even put on tefillin yet. (laughs) You know, whatever it is. That restaurant isn't kosher. (laughs) And we think that's God talking to us. But do you understand? God doesn't yell. (laughs) And if we hear that harsh, angry voice inside of our head, it isn't God. It might be the Yetzirah masquerading as God, the evil inclination masquerading as God. It could be our own impatience or disappointment with ourselves acting out. But it isn't God. When God communicates, and I'm offering as proof of when he's asked the most difficult thing to do in all of history, he says, Kachna, please take. The language couldn't be more gentle. So that's really important because because we're inhabiting God's universe. And it's just important for us to understand that, that God is good, that God loves us, 
and that life isn't easy, and that life is often very hard, but underlying everything is God's concern for us and our success, and has built this for our success. I mean, it says in Perke Avos, every single person, like every Jew has a, a share in the world to come. And the Rambam explains that the reason, or one of the reasons why is there's 613 commandments, which is a lot, is that it's impossible to get through this lifetime without doing something right. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the world is literally built for our success. Okay, so let's just maybe circle back to the beginning and we can wrap it up. The very, very first thing that God said to the first Jew was lech lecha, right? It's all, the whole mission is contained within that. And Reb Leibola Eger, right? Go, go forward, journey, journey forth, journey to yourself, bring heaven down to earth, however, however you want to translate it. You can translate it a lot of different ways. Reb Leibola Eger says something so important. He says, you know what the first message to the first Jew was? Don't stop moving. Just keep going. Don't give up. Don't stop. Don't stop. Don't stop. So, so maybe you think that that means that God never gets angry. Um, but I think that for me, one of the big breakthroughs in terms of my spiritual journey was, was realizing that, that, that the word punishment is, is not really a Jewish understanding that there are fixings. In other words, what, what, if a person really kind of gets off the proper path, let's say, then, then a, a, a redirection is, is often necessary. Like imagine like someone walks off a cliff and then another person reaches down quickly and yanks them back up. Well, that's going to be fairly shocking to the person, but it's saving their life. I'll give you another visual, one I like even more. Imagine a person wanders off the road, the paved road, kind of wanders off to the side where where there's this big thorn bush and walks into the middle of a thorn bush and is now trapped in the middle of a thorn bush. Well, how do you get him out of a thorn bush? By pulling him through the thorn bush. <laughs> it's not comfortable, but how else are you going to get him out from the middle of a thorn bush? So you say, you're killing me. I mean, can you imagine in the middle, like someone's having like heart surgery, right? Best heart surgeon in the world is going to save their life. And then they cut the person's chest and the person wakes up and says, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> I mean, we gotta, we gotta do, we, we gotta do what we gotta do. So, so there is a way of describing it as God's anger, and it's not incorrect. By the way, you're not crazy to think of it as God's anger. The Torah in itself, the Torah itself, even refers to it. God Himself refers to it as God's anger. But, but that's, you know, we're kind of in the moment. 
do, do you know what I'm saying? In the moment, that's the way it's kind of manifesting. But take a few steps back, and you realize that there's a course correction going on. And who course corrects unless they care and they love? You know, because there's a certain point where someone, you know, I mean, imagine in your life where there's someone who disappoints you once, twice, five times. After a certain amount of times, you know, as, as they say, you, you, you can continue to love them, but you, at that point, you love them from afar. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's sort of like, I can't do this anymore. I, I still love you, but I'm loving you from here, and good luck. That's it. So, so if there is active course correction taking place, that in itself is a sign of love. There's a classic Torah from the Baal Shem Tov. I learned it from Reb Shlomo, and it's, uh, you know, so, you know, you, you, you get into these ideas like, like okay, so it's, it's not a punishment, it's not a fixing, but what about if when someone young dies or something like that, God forbid we should all live long. And then you go, well, you know, how do you answer that? And, and, and by the way, the answer is we don't know. You know, the... the there, there's a fancy word, right? It's called theodicy, right? So, you know, if um, that means um, why do the study of why the righteous suffer? Okay, so, so the rabbis say why why do the righteous suffer? And then they they they, they and I think that you see real Jewish wisdom here. They answer, we don't know. And then they give a hundred answers. <laughs> but it begins with, we don't know. Which is beautiful, actually. You know, I saw, um, I saw from, uh, the Piyasesna Rebbe brought it, um, from the Baal Shem Tov. At the time of the Baal Shem Tov, there was someone who was alive, I guess, in that community or in that area, who was considered like a, a very, very righteous person. And people like really like looked up to this person. It was like, wow. And they went up to the Baal Shem Tov and they said, how can we really know if he's as righteous as we imagine? If, he, if he's actually righteous, how do we know? So the Baal Shem Tovs told them the following. I thought this was amazing. Everyone should really take this to heart, really remember this. They said, go up to him and ask him how you can stop bad thoughts coming into your mind. And if he has a definitive answer, he's a liar. Because you, that's just something that we live with. Okay, you can get better at it. You can get to the point where when you're, whatever, they don't become a distraction. But to cancel them out entirely, it's, it's not real. So, so anyway, let me tell you this teaching. This is from the Baal Shem Tov. I heard it from Reb Shlomo. Um, and it's, it's, not a, it's not a definitive answer, but it's just something that people should understand because if you understand the reality of what, what this teaching tells us, it really does change the, the story of death and especially tragic death. Right? doesn't fix it like that. Human beings will grieve them. Maybe they'll grieve till the day they die. But 
Again, if you really understand what this is saying, it's, it's a game changer, I think. So, so there's certain words um, that the rabbis uh, gave us, which, um, which you say to someone who's mourning. And it's, um, it's, it's the hamakum, it's, the, it's the, you know, the, the words of consolation. Like if you go into a, a house of mourning, like a lot of times they'll have this, you know, kind of framed so that people can say it and it's, it's right there. And, and in English it says, uh, may the omnipresent, that's, that's how they refer to God, which is very beautiful that God is referred to. It's a, it's a rare word to, in the prayers for God, hamakum. Hamakum means God which means the place. Why? Because they're already telling you that the, that the soul didn't go anywhere. <laughs> that God who fills the entire world, the place, that this soul is still in the place, it's still here. You didn't lose the soul. So it might not be with you at this moment, but you, God forbid that you th- would think that you lost them. No, 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 they're still very much here. Okay, so that's all contained within the first word. So, Hamakome, the omnipresent, console you among the other mourning, mourners of Zion in Jerusalem, Zion in Jerusalem. So, so here's the question. You address this to an individual mourner, and in Hebrew it says, Hamakom Yenachem. So Yenachem is in the plural. So, so why, if you're talking to one person, are you saying in the plural you should be consoled? You, plural, should be consoled. And so the answer from the Baal Shem Tov explains that it's in the plural because it's really, there are two entities that need consolation right now. The mourner and the soul that's departed. So you say, I understand why the mourner needs consoling, but the soul that's just departed is in the Garden of Eden. (laughs) So the soul that's just departed is in a fantastic place. It doesn't need any consoling. So why does it need to be consoled? Why is it included? Yenachem, plural. Why do you include the soul which is now in the Garden of Eden? Why does that need to be consoled? Because it's sad that you're sad. So that's, that's strong. That's strong. That's strong. And you see that the reason why we feel tragedies are tragedies is because we think that the tragedy, you got to the last page of the book and now the book is over. That's the psychology of tragedy, if you will. Like that, okay, that's the end of the movie. What? And then everyone kind of stands up and walks out of the theater like shaking their heads and crying. But that's just not keeping your eye on the big picture, on the reality of the world. Because there is a happy ending. There's a happy ending to all of our lives because there's eternity in front of each one of us. So each of our lives has a happy ending. And history itself, the world will be perfected. That was implanted in the world from the beginning of the world. It's the inevitable destiny of the world itself to have a happy ending. So our lives have a happy ending. The world has a happy ending. There are happy endings. 
And I'll tell you something, which I think is kind of cool, which is, you know, if you look just, I'm talking about just basic history right now. If you look at the founders of Hollywood, meaning out in California, all the founders of the various movie studios, except maybe with the exception of one, but really every other one, were founded by Jews. And, and they gave the world, they gave the world what's known as the Hollywood ending. <laughs> right? Because all of a sudden you'd be watching movies and all of a sudden there would be a happy ending. Like the idea of a happy ending is rooted so deeply in Judaism and in the nature of our souls, such that one of my favorite factoids that I learned from Rabbi Cardozo, that Schopenhauer, who is a great philosopher and Jew hater, one of the reasons why he hated Jews is because, you ready for this? He accused the Jews of giving the world optimism. <laughs> but we say it's not optimism, it's just the reality of existence. So we're not trying to be upbeat. This is what it is. Like, oh, wouldn't it be great if there's dessert? No, 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 it's already here. Yeah, but wouldn't it be great? No, no, you don't understand. Turn around. See that cake? That's the dessert. It's already here. I know you're looking at your plate right now, but the dessert is here. But, ah, I hope there's dessert. No, no, no. Where am I losing you? Turn around. There's the dessert. Incorporate the dessert into the reality of your meal. It doesn't have to be on the level of belief. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.